Hello and welcome once again to sorry, I'm Aaron, a horror fan podcast. This is episode number 11. It is indeed. Woo! We're here with um, the first episode of March for a little bit of March madness. Things are going to get very, very weird very, very quickly this month, um, especially when we hit the middle of the month because I've just remembered what we're covering midway. Um, so yeah, as always, I am one of your hosts, Simon, and as ever with me is... Hi, I'm Lee! Hiya! Hiya! <laughs> um, so yeah, this week we're covering, to kick off March, we're covering the 1998 slasher film Halloween H2O. Boop, 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 boop. So yeah, this is, uh, this is one I've been wanting to do for a while. Um, uh, in hindsight, though, I'm not really sure, like, having rewatched it. Um, you know, this is one of those ones when it kind of came up. We were a bit like, it'll be a good one for you to do. Um, but with regards to sort of the Halloween franchise, for me, this was the first Halloween movie I saw when I was a kid. So I yeah. saw this movie when I was, like, 13. Um, and it was, like, the reason why I saw it and I didn't, like, seek out any of the other Halloween movies prior to this was because at the time I was a massive Scream fan um, so I was just watching a lot of movies that were just like Scream so you know I know what we did last summer Urban Legend, Scream 2, The Faculty all things like sort of similar to Scream so that's kind of why Halloween I hadn't really didn't really have any prior knowledge really of the franchise prior to this I was just like I was a kid who liked 90 slash movies I was like I want to see this movie um but for you I mean obviously we're now 21 22 years away from this movie having come out yeah something like that where are we 2000 yeah so we're wow 23 years 23 years from this movie coming out so I mean for you how did you feel going into it seeing it for the first time so much longer after it had come out and it being the first Halloween movie that you saw so see I was a bit weary going into it because I am terrified of Michael Myers um like he's one of the the horror movie characters that I grew up with like I'm an ingrained phobia of mm-hmm. so I think I kind of agreed to watch this one a because uh Josh Hartnett is in it mm-hmm. and b because I know about the really cheesy mask in this one um but yeah, I wasn't looking forward to it. So you, yeah, I mean, this movie does a really good job of making you not scared of Michael Myers. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I'd say that because the thing is, is for all it is as cheesy as it gets and as bad as it is, like I feel like I still have that ingrained fear of Michael Myers, but just not in this film. Yeah. Like I'm terrified of the day we finally watch the first Halloween movie. Like I'm literally my my I'm I'm scared before even watching it. Like I'm terrified of the idea of watching the first Halloween movie. Nice. Yeah. So I've seen clips from it, and he terrified. It's just the way he lurched out of the shadows with no pre warning, and I'm just like not here for this. Yeah, I mean, but in terms of the actual film itself, like as somebody who's never seen any of the other Halloween movies, like was it? hard film for you to follow did you kind of get everything that you needed from it in terms of this is where we're at in the story now like disregard everything else yeah it wasn't because it opens with kind of like a montage i say montage a, a newspaper 
montage of here's all the things that happened previously that you have missed on Halloween. Previously on Halloween. Well, only those first two movies. The first two movies, yeah. yeah. But like, I know quite a lot about Halloween anyway. Again, hang on one second. I apologise for this, guys. You're all going to hear my can go. There we go. I know quite a lot about Halloween as it is because... A, you love it so much, and B, I've seen a lot of documentaries again because of you, that I didn't really need to know the plot before anyway because I already knew the story. Mm-hmm. Like, I know that there's, like, different timelines, there's different versions of the Halloween myth. Sometimes he's, you know, not related to the family in another way anyway. Sometimes he's Laurie's brother. Like, it's a bit of a clusterfuck of a uh, plot line. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I knew I knew kind of what had happened previously going in to this I movie mean, anyway. I have a bit of a weird relationship with the Halloween franchise. Like, I'm not a huge fan of Halloween, like, as a franchise, generally. Mm. Like, I find of the big three, Michael Myers to be the most boring. And, uh, like, I really like Freddy for the most part. And, I like, Jason's my favourite horror movie character of all time. Like, I love Jason to pieces. I think the thing with the Halloween franchise is it is unlike I like the I like the Nightmare on Elm Street and Jason Voorhees like the Friday the Thirteenth franchise where those movies got sillier as they they went on mm-hmm. like it seems like the Halloween franchise just went bonkerlonkos from the beginning like it was like the first two movies then you had Season of the Witch which is like absolutely nothing to do with like the Michael Myers lore or the rest of the franchise because they wanted to make it into anthology movies. And then there's the whole Cult of Thorn stuff, which takes up parts four, five, and six, where, like, they killed Laurie's character off-screen, but then they were like, here's her daughter, who's Michael's niece, and Michael's being, like, controlled by an evil cult who, like, lurk in the shadows, and, oh, God, here's Paul Rudd. And then, like... <laughs> oh, God, here's Paul Rudd. That's a sentence that I love at any point, is, here is Paul Rudd. And then, like, obviously, they, they brought um, Laurie Strode back in part seven, which is what we're going to talk about today. Then she's in Resurrection, then she gets killed off, then Rob Zombie rebooted the franchise, then they got Jamie Lee Curtis back. It seems like every time this franchise needs rebooting, it defaults back to Laurie Strode, whether it's with Rob Zombie's remakes, which were some kind of attempt to reboot the franchise. Then when, you know, Rob pieced out after part two, they kind of went, well, let's just get Jamie back and do another legacy movie like 40 years later. So it seems like whether they're, they're either getting Jamie Lee Curtis back or the character back, it seems like she is the great reset button for this franchise. I feel a little bit like as much as I know it's, it's like the Michael Myers franchise because it's Halloween. It's not really. It's the Laurie Strode story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the thing is, like, with Laurie Strode, like, again, even she exists in four separate timelines. Mm-hmm. Um, because you've got the first two movies which are then connected to Halloween H2O. Then Halloween H2O didn't go anywhere. Then you've got the Rob Zombie version where Scout Taylor Compton played her for two movies, which is its own thing. And I implore anybody, if you want to watch a really fucking whacked out movie, watch Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. It's fucking bananas. Um, Like Michael Myers is like a fucking hillbilly in it who's got half a mask and like Laurie Strode is just really fucking different to how she's in all the other movies. There's stuff with like Michael seeing his dead mum and a white horse and like it's just fucking crazy. Yeah, because they're not brother and sister in the Rob Zombie ones, are they? Yes. 
Oh, they are so brother Rob, and sister. Rob Zombie kept the, the brother and sister mythology. Um, a large part of Rob Zombie's first one is seeing Michael as a child. So you see a lot of... So basically, he's a teenager. Mm-hmm. He's like maybe 11 or 12 in the Rob Zombie one. So they've aged him up six years. Um, and then you sort of see him living with his mum, the baby who is Laurie, who at the time is known as Angel Myers. Because obviously when Michael kills Judith in the original, like Laurie gets adopted and all this stuff. And that's the angle that Rob Zombie plays with. So he's got like an abusive stepdad. His mum's a stripper. Like his sister's like a fucking dickhead. Um, and then you kind of get that whole thing. But then it goes into like the whole thing of him like seeing the child version of himself hanging out with his mum in dream sequences and there's a white horse and she's a ghost. This is just weird. And then, like, it's, it's fucking bonkalong. It's just weird. Like, it's weird. Um, and then, obviously, like... They... Is it the Thorn ones, then, where they're not related? No, the Thorn ones are related as well. And which ones aren't they related in? The new one. So, okay. Halloween, Halloween 2018, there's a line of dialogue where one of Alison's friends, who is Laurie's granddaughter, says, wasn't it her brother... And he says, she says, no, that's something that was made up just to make people feel better. Um, Like, it's a whole big thing of the story of, like, which, again, so, yeah, the original, like, the first one, it's not said that she is. That's only introduced in Halloween 2. Okay. From the get-go, in both of Rob Zombie's ones, they are brother and sister. And then in the reboot, so the new franchise, the new series that we're in, which is Halloween 18... So Halloween 2018 follows Halloween 1 and 2, ignores H2O, and then basically just starts again. Essentially, Halloween 2018 is effectively a remake of H2O because it it sees Laurie at a different point in her life. So you kind of see she's a 60-year-old woman now who's got a, a daughter and a granddaughter, and she's become more of a survivalist. But I want to talk about the differences between this and H2O towards the end of the film after we talk about H2O. So yeah, Halloween H2O, again, it didn't start off originally as H2O. What they wanted to do was they wanted to make another direct-to-video sequel, which came out and followed The Curse of Michael Myers. Mm -hmm. So there were a couple of scripts that floated around. There was one called Halloween uh, Lord of the Dead, which was kind of more of a direct sequel. Um, There was The Two Faces of Evil, which sounded fucking awesome. And I think the guy, I can't remember his name, Dan Fanat, I can't remember what his surname is, I will look it up before the end of this episode. But he wrote a script that basically took elements of what ended up in H2O. So it was set in an all-girls boarding school and there was like a, there was a, a killer, a copycat killer that was kind of like copying what Michael Myers was doing and then there was a cop and it was a bit like Silence of the Lambsy. But, like, the whole thing of, like, Laurie working at uh, boarding school was still there. And then Kevin Williamson took a stab at a script, which incorporated all of the franchise. So it would it was going to be called Laurie's Revenge. And it would have taken into account, like, everything that happened in 4, 5, and 6. And would have, like, picked back up with where she was. It would have had Jamie Lloyd in it, which is her original child. Um, and it was, just like... So I think they kind of cherry-picked ideas from these different scripts... Um, and eventually, uh, Kevin Williamson did do some script work on this. Um, this is the first sign of them. But when they were working in the sort of production, they kind of went, well, 
what if we got Jamie back? What if we did a theatrical thing? What if we scrubbed everything else and just did it as a direct sequel to Halloween 2 and had it as like the 20th anniversary? You know, we'll get uh, Jamie Lee Curtis back. Um, and then it kind of snowballed from there and became a big thing. But this is the first sign of sort of Jamie Lee Curtis having more control over the franchise because she was given like script approval, director approval. I think she was given like story approval. Um, and obviously she picked, uh, ultimately, I think, who ended up playing her son as well. Because obviously, you know, this retcons... The amount of the amount of retconned kids this woman has in this franchise is unbelievable. Mm. Um, so, yeah, Steve Miner, who directed Friday the 13th Part 2 and Lake Placid. I think he did Virus. Um, he worked on Virus with Jamie Lee Curtis previously, which is why I think she wanted to work with him again. Was picked to direct... The Weinsteins got Jamie Lee Curtis on board and they went, right, fuck it, we're doing like Halloween H2O. It's going to be 20 years later. But then they kind of made this massive mistake of just making it a screen movie. Um, and I think kind of by this point, Kevin Williamson fatigue was starting to set in a little bit. Mm -hmm. So this is 1998. We had Scream in 96. We had Scream 2 and I Know What You Did Last Summer, both written by Kevin Williamson in 97. Then in 98, we had this... But then we also had Urban Legend, we had The Faculty, which is another Kevin Williamson one, and we had I Still Know What We Did Last Summer. So even though I Still Know What We Did Last Summer and Urban Legend had no Kevin Williamson involvement, it was still that smart teens, hip young crowd, everybody's super aware of what's going on, and we've got kind of like a big celebrity cameo. Like mm -hmm. I Still Know What We Did Last Summer's got fucking Brandy in it. Um, Urban Legend had Robert England in it, um, and Joshua Jackson, who was like famous for Dawson's Creek at the time so it was kind of starting to get to that point of like this is getting old now and i think that's part of the reason why halloween h2o is a largely forgettable film because rather than me i mean i loved this movie when i was a teenager like when i was young this was like a go-to movie for me i remember having this film on vhs and just watching it like constantly but i think when you re-watch it now you can kind of see that the emphasis was on Jamie Lee Curtis and making this as scream-like as possible, um, and I think that's one of the movie's major failings. Yeah, I will get behind that. I would say this is quite a quite a forgetful film. Just like for context on this, so we normally we record directly after we watch a movie. Mm -hmm. This time we haven't. It's We've a couple of days couple later. Of days, let it, I had to let it sink in. Let it sink bit. in, and I have forgotten the majority of this film. <laughs> yeah, like no word of a lie, because um, it is. It's just. Meh. That's literally the words I've got for it. Is meh. I think I think the problem with this film, and we'll get into some of the deeper problems as we go through it, is they were so concerned about the fact that they had Jamie Lee Curtis back that they really forgot to put effort in anywhere else. Yeah. And it is kind of like the Jamie Lee Curtis show. And far be it from me to talk shit on the Queen, but <laughs> she looks like she's sleepwalking through half of this movie. Yeah. The only scenes that she seems to show any vitality in are the end scene when she's facing off with Michael and any scene that she's in with Josh Hartnett. Mm -hmm. Every other time in this movie, she looks like she's just sleepwalking through it. And for someone who has gone through the level of trauma that she has gone through, and they are trying to portray that she is still going through in this movie, she looks really bored. She just looks like she's delivering lines and she's not really... 
there. She looks very mentally checked out from the whole thing. It comes across with it. It's like she had, you know, she just bought a new house, needed an extra bit of cash, so she was like, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. Like, it didn't... <clears throat> it doesn't come across like it's something she actually wanted to do. It was more about, oh, I need the money. Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And I think that's another reason why she came back probably for Halloween 2018 was to make up for this movie, yeah. which, to be to be perfectly honest, I mean, it's one of those things. I think when you watch the movie, it's really obvious that she doesn't want to be there for a lot of it, mm. which is odd because of how much control she had. Um, and, like, I remember there's a really great documentary, if anybody wants to see it. It's on the Scream Factory with Halloween Blu-ray box set, but you can watch it on YouTube, called Blood is Thicker Than Water. And it's the making of Halloween H2O. And in interviews, like, she seems really up for it. She seems really excited and stuff. But there's moments where they're talking about how she would phone Kevin Williamson at, like, 3 o'clock in the morning and be like, we need to change this, or can you do that, or can you change this? And she insisted on having him on set, and he was, like, in her ear, like, a lot. She was, like, exercising that kind of level of control over, you know, we need this, we need that. Yeah. Like, she had She had the ending written... So that Michael Myers... She basically had a clause in her contract that said, Michael Myers has to be seen to be dead at the end of this movie. You cannot set up a sequel. It has to be definitive. I have to have killed him. But then the Akkad family, Mustafa and Malak, had a clause in their contract that said that they could still make sequels. So Kevin Williamson had to write the ending of this movie that is retconned at the beginning of... So basically, essentially... We'll get to that yeah, at the end, because I, I have a few thoughts So, otherwise she would have walked off the project. So, for someone that had so much control, for her to be kind of not interested in the film is really interesting in itself. But I think also the film suffers quite a lot from that. Like, no offence to um, Jamie Lee in any way, shape or form, but... The fact that obviously they had written the film and then throughout the process of making it, things were getting changed, the sh- the script was getting changed, scenes were getting like taken out, put in. And I think the film really suffered from that because they were basically going into it day to day, not knowing whether anything would be changed or not, or if Jamie would have changed her mind overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think probably, and it, we, I find that with any movie where you find out like things would change during filming, they were still writing the script, I was going, the film always suffers. It's yeah. very rare that, that happens and it comes out with a, holy shit, this is amazing, because there's so much, like you've learnt those lines, you've learnt that script, and then you go on set and they're like, no, it's completely changed, here's, yeah. here's today's lines, you need to learn these, you've got 20 minutes. I mean, the worst, the worst case of that that I've heard on a horror movie in recent years, was on screen three. Mm-hmm. They were literally changing things on the hour. So they were literally getting to set, and within an hour they had new lines or new parts. Like, they were literally writing as there they was... went on that movie. I don't know if it was one we've covered, but I remember I was watching a documentary and they were, like, people saying, like, you know, I'd show up to film and they'd be like, here you go, you got 20 minutes, you need to learn those lines and get on set. Yeah. And they'd have people... Sp- like telling them the lines from off screen because they didn't have time I think that was screen 3 yeah I think it was a documentary we may have have watched I say we watched uh, you watched while I played video games on my laptop (laughs) but yeah it's it's mental like and the thing is as well especially for like first time actors this is the first movie Josh Hartnett ever made and I think that's why the scenes with them pop 
Because she's trying to help him. Yeah. Like, she realises he's a first-time actor, and, like, she's trying to put effort in so that his performance is as good as hers. Was this, like, one of his, like, outside of, like, TV and stuff? Was this, like, legitimately one of the first things he ever made? Yeah. Ever? Yeah. Like, cause he made this in the faculty in the same year. He read for the faculty first, but then this... Oh, yeah, literally, he... it's his first on um, on IMDb. It's literally <clears throat> Halloween, debutante, the faculty, virgin suicides. Yeah. So yeah, this was like his first, literally his first thing. He didn't even do TV beforehand. No. He did, oh no, he was doing Fitz, because Fitz is 97 to 99. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's insane to think, because this is obviously, like this would have been expected to be a huge film. Yeah. Because of what it is. That I never, I never realised, I assumed he'd been doing like a bit, because normally you get, you see an actor, like, it's their first movie, but then you look at their MD and they've been like, if they're in England, they've been like Holby City, Hollyoaks, yeah. Coronation Street, EastEnders, Emmerdale. They've done guest spots on like Midsummer Murders. Because he he. But I suppose it's like different in America, isn't it? Because they don't really have those like daily shows like we yeah, have here. Just, like Days of Their Lives or some like that, or Passions. But isn't that like weekly though? I don't really know to be honest. I don't know if they do the same as what we do, where you have like we have Corrie, EastEnders, yeah. Emmerdale, and Hollyoaks that show. are on like five times mm. a week. I don't know. Good question. But yeah, he. Um, into that, find out. I remember him saying on the documentary that he'd read for the faculty, and because it's the same studio, they handed him the script for Halloween H2O while he was auditioning for the faculty oh. and said, Would you mind reading this as well? And that's how he got the part of um, John Tate, which is obviously Jamie Lee's son. But yeah, so we've got Halloween H2O, 1998, directed by Steve Miner. We've got Jamie Lee Curtis back as Laurie Strode. We've got Adam Arkin as Will Brennan. We've got Jodie Lewick, Will Brennan, Adam Arkin. Oh, Adam Arkin, yeah. Sorry, we've I was got... looking at the script and I was like, who, where? Yep, we've sorry. got Jodie Lynn O'Keefe as Sarah. We've got Michelle Williams as Molly. We've got, I forgot his name again, the guy who plays Charlie. Adam Hanbird. Adam Hanbird. We've got Josh Hartnett as John Tate. We've got uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's mum, the amazing Janet Lee, as her PA Norma, mm-hmm. and we've got LL Cool J as Ronnie, yes. and that's and then it's Chris Durant who plays the shape slash Michael Myers. Yes. Um, so the funniest thing about this movie, one of the funniest things, is this movie came out in August, and on the poster, the original theatrical poster, which I have a T-shirt of. Shout out to the people at Fright Rags. Uh, fright-rags.com if you want to go get some sick horror shirts they hooked me up I got a lovely Halloween H2O t-shirt from them it says um, this summer evil will not be taking a vacation because the movie was released in the summer but it's fucking set at Halloween it was released in October babe no it was released in August it was an August movie um, um, according to IMDB it was released on the 23rd of October in the UK um, yeah so in the UK it came out in October but in the in America it came out in August um, I, did it. I, don't, I don't think there's anywhere else that really tells you where it came out. Yeah, we've got the UK. Oh, yeah, August 5th. Yeah, so that's why the, the poster says this summer evil won't be taking a vacation. Um, <laughs> but the movie is set in October. In October. The film literally opens with a woman putting a knife into a fucking pumpkin while listening to Mr. Sandman. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I understand your marketing because it's coming out in the summer, but it's a little bit confusing because the film is very clearly set at Halloween. It is a nightmare that this movie opened with, with Mr. Sandman, though, because I've been humming it since we watched it. 
I mean, it would have been better if it had opened with Enter Sandman. Yeah. <laughs> but literally, I've been I've been wandering around humming Mr. Sandman to mm-hmm. myself for like, for like three days now. Yeah. The mo- the actual the cold open of this movie is the only time Michael Myers is scary in this film. I think because the film opens obviously mm. uh, in Illinois. You've got Marion Chambers, who is the nurse mm-hmm. from the first two movies. She's actually controversially the one who, in canon in the franchise is the first person to suggest that Michael and Laurie are brother and sister. Her character says it in Halloween 2. Mm. Um, but you you kind of get this thing of she comes home, it's the same actress, I can't remember the actress's name off the top of my head. Um, but I think she's I, coming back for Halloween I had it films. a second ago and I was like, oh yeah, she's in it, isn't she? It's Nancy Stevens. Yeah, because she I think she's in Halloween Kills, as far as I know, or the character definitely is. Um, so she comes home from work, she sees that her light outside the house has been smashed in. Um, she is back for Halloween Kills, you are correct. And then she basically decides to go into the house. She's a little bit nervous. She's like, I'm going to go in the house. But then she kind of decides not to. And two teenagers from the local area. There's her next door neighbours. Yeah, Tony and Jimmy. Jimmy. As played by baby Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Oh, little tiny Joseph Gordon-Levitt. One year, one year prior to uh, Ten Things I Hate About You. Um, so basically, she's like, look, you know, I'm a bit nervous about going in the house. So Jimmy suggests that they call the police. Um, they go to her house and... No, they go to his house. They sit down and they're like, we'll call the police. But then in the meantime, he's like, I'm going to go and check it out and see if everything's okay. Yeah, the police are all like, we'll be there in 15 minutes. Yeah. So it's daylight at this point. It's like mm, early evening. Yeah, I'm pretty late sure about five, six o'clock. Ish, yeah, it's like not too late. It's still Detail. full daylight outside when they decide to go to the house. Um, police can be there in 15 minutes and Jimmy's all like, well, I'll grab a little nosy nose, see what's going on. And he says my favourite thing. He like gets into the house and he's got his hockey stick and he's all like, what is it? I don't want to mess with me. I've been suspended three times for getting a bit crazy with the hockey stick. Yeah, it's a weird like... This whole scene is really weird because he's like super cocky, but then one of those like ironing boards falls out the cupboard and yes. he like genuinely shits himself and he spins around and like smashes a bunch of stuff up in her kitchen. But I do know because we don't have those ironing boards. I've never seen one of those ironing board things in the UK. So that wouldn't happen over here. But also at the same point, you'd never live in a house like that in the UK unless you lived in the middle of nowhere. No, we were saying this, like the neighbourhood they live in, the houses all look like fucking mansions thing is though, i don't know if it's just because it's not what we're used to because obviously in the uk generally you'll live in a terrace house whether mm-hmm. it's a mid or an end mm-hmm. you'd live in a terrace house unless you live in a bungalow or out in the middle of the sticks like an old farmlands like my nana's house yeah um so houses like that don't really exist so much over here because everyone's attached to each other yeah and like the thing with the thing of the houses in america is you find this a lot in american movies or like american tv shows They've all got the big lawns. Everyone's mm. got a drive. White picket fence. Like, two kids, a dog. Yeah, like everyone's got like a drive slash garage, and like all the houses look massive, and they all look like they all look like identical houses. They all look ba- basically the same. It must be weird though, like because I do think about this sometimes, like when Amer- Americans visit England, because they they don't they don't attach their houses. All of them have a like a driveway mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Like to come to England and see like 
especially in a lot of the cities, we don't have driveways, we don't have gardens out front. Yeah. Like There's our, no picket fences. Our houses all look very two-dimensional from the outside. They yeah. just look like flat houses, whereas, like, American ones, because they've got the porches that come out with, like, the wooden bits, people sit in the porches, they've got the angular roofs, they look more three-dimensional yeah. because you can walk around them. You can actually see, like, the sides of the houses, you can see the back of the house, you can see, like, the big front porch bit. They almost kind of weirdly like exist on their own patch of land yeah whereas when you walk down like our street particularly every house looks the same oh no they're vaguely different but they and... were all built at the same point but i did say this to someone the other day because we were about like how old places in england are and um they were asking about like when i was talking to rosie i think it was rosie or one of one of the of my friends anyway and they were asking about when our house was built and i was like our house was built in like 1890 mm-hmm. and then she was like it's how old now yeah and I forget as well, because that's that, I mean, it's quite old for a house anyway, because this is like a Victorian era terrace house. But like, then I was thinking like, in America, this house is ancient. Yeah. Well, my parents' house that they live in currently is over a hundred years old. Yeah. I mean, like, the house is built in like 1890. Yeah. That's why all of the toilets, there are additions on the back of the yeah. houses, because they didn't have toilets back then. Yeah. But anyway, get, yeah, get, back to the, get back to the point at hand. This is not how, homes under the hammer. <laughs> Um, so yeah, like he's in the house, he freaks out, steals a couple of beers, um, basically goes out and is like, your office is completely trashed. Um, so is your like, kitchen. Oh, yeah, they really mess up your kitchen as well for some yeah. reason. So she's like, okay, she goes back into the house. It's like nighttime now. Yeah. It's pitch black by the time police still haven't shown up. I don't yeah. know how long he was in the house for cause it's now pitch black. All of the street lights are on. So they... The two teenagers fuck off. She goes into the house and sees that her office has been trashed. Mm-hmm. And this is the first indication that Michael Myers is like fucking Columbo or some shit. Um, because he, it's clearly him that's been in the house and like looking for the records to see if he can find out where Laurie is or like what happened to Samuel Loomis. Spoiler alert, you find out between this movie and like the second movie. Obviously, at the end of The Curse of Michael Myers... Loomis is left on his own, but this movie disregards that. So in the time period of the last 20 years between Halloween 2 and this movie, Dr. Loomis has passed away because Donald Pleasant's actually passed away IRL. So it's a little bit sad. Pulling out for the homies. Yeah, you kind of find out that he's dead. So he's obviously looking for some evidence of where Loomis is and where Laurie is so that he can kind of... But he's getting his revenge, I guess. Yeah, so... She's like milling around in the house. She hears like a noise and decides that she's going to try and like go back to the teenager's house. Yeah, she kind of freaks out and heads back over to Jimmy's place. Finds that he's had a fucking ice skate put in his face. In the face. In the face. And the other kid's been like stabbed. And then she's like, oh no. He's like propped up in a cupboard, isn't he? She opens the door, he like falls onto her. She tries to get out of the house and Michael ends up in the kitchen doorway and like, there's a little bit of a chase sequence as he gives chase through the house. Her down, he? And then you like, the police finally show up as she's in the window. Six like, hours later. Screaming. And um, she gets her throat slit in the window while the police are outside being an absolute bunch of incompetent twats. Um, and then we get the title card of the film. It says like over the, you get the kind of like the score kicks in and you get the montage that you were saying voiced by Samuel Loomis. is like, I met a six-year-old child. He had the devil's eyes, the blackest eyes, and all that crap. <laughs> and then you get the obviously the title card. It did. It did impress me though that the cops don't hear her. 
in this sequence. Because, like, she's, the window is open. Yeah. And she's like, oh, is it open? And he smashes her head through it later on, doesn't he? So it's not open when they shove at the door. But she's, like, screaming next door, like, properly, like, is, giving it hard. Cops don't hear her. The thing is, as well, you see him drive off. Yeah, he, like, he, like, literally, the car, well, he, don't, he doesn't turn the lights on. No. But he slowly yeah. drives the car. Wait, right, right, okay. Series of questions here. First of all, how dumb are your cops that you don't hear somebody mm-hmm. screaming and think, hmm, might investigate that? Mm-hmm. Secondly, um, how intelligent is Michael that he's basically become fucking Columbo at some point? And thirdly, where the fuck did he learn to drive? Well, this is the thing. So this is the thing with this movie and with Halloween 2018. Both movies... Well, I mean, Halloween 2018 doesn't have the reverse effect. It doesn't make him as dumb. But this movie simultaneously goes out of its way to make you think Michael Myers is super fucking intelligent, but also that he can do, he will ultimately end up doing the dumbest shit imaginable. Mm. Because, as you said, so the Michael Myers timeline as set up by this film is Halloween 1978. Mm-hmm. Michael Myers is a six-year-old boy. On Halloween night, he kills Judith Myers and he gets taken away. He spends 15 years in a sanitarium Mm -hmm. and then comes back as an adult in that same movie. So if we're saying he's six and he's been in a sanitarium for 15 years, at the end, at the climax of Halloween, going into Halloween 2, because they're set on the same night, Michael Myers is 21 years old Mm -hmm. and has been mute and in a sanitarium in what I assume is solitary confinement for 15 years. Mm Now, this movie is 20 years removed from that night. So Michael Myers is in the 35 to 36 age range. No, sorry. 40, 42 41. Years. He's like 41, yeah, 42. Because Laurie's about 37 in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so for 20 years, apparently, he's been getting a driving license. He's been learning how to read. Well, I mean... He could have read, to be in fairness, he could have he read, could have in, the to read in the sanitarium. Yeah. Because in, in like Rob Zombie's one, you do see him like making masks and stuff. So and well, he's got a little arts and he's got a little arts and crafts set up. Him, him, him and Valentine. Him and Jeremy, him and Jeremy Melton. Um so yeah, like he's he's obviously like of a high level of intelligence because yeah. like Loomis says he is obviously intelligent and in Halloween in twenty eighteen they reference the fact that he can talk. He, he just, just chooses, chooses not, not to. to. And he's, like, aware. Like, he's very cognitive. Yeah, but it's but, just, like, it's like, little things. Like, you know, how did he learn to drive? Where did he learn to, like, oh, it'd be fucking clever. Because also, as well, like, obviously, he ends up going after Laurie. Um, but I'm assuming in her file, it doesn't say where she's moved to. Because as far as anyone is concerned, she is dead. Yeah, and, like, this is, like, very... In that 20 years between 1978 and 1998... The, the internet has become very underdeveloped. You don't have cell phones or mobiles, if you're English. You don't have mobile phones. You certainly don't have ones with the internet on. The internet is a very rudimentary thing at this point. Is it you no, know, no, no, yeah. I mean, the, the internet's about, and cell phones kind of exist, but not to the level we're used to and now. Like, the thing is, as well... Like, like she's not going to have a Facebook page being like... No. Oh, yeah, I'm actually Laurie Strode, fake my death. <laughs> Lol. And, like, the thing is, has he... When he's not killing people... Does he live a normal existence? Like, this is the questions that I have. 
in that will, like we know what happened to Laurie in that twenty years. We know that she got married or that she had a partner. We know yeah, that she she's got had married. John. We know that she moved out of Haddonfield. We know that she became Kerry Tate. We know that she, as this movie informs us, she changed her identity. She became a headmistress at a very faked her own death posh private school. You know, she's had her son. She's gone through a divorce or a breakup, and then she's like. I think it's a divorce. I'm pretty sure it gets referenced at some point that they are divorced. But also at the same point, like, because obviously we have no idea what Michael actually looks like underneath that mask. Mm -hmm. Because we don't see him after we see him as a kid. You never see him again without his mask, really, do you? So, like, does he just have like a, a real like he takes his mask off? He looks like a normal guy, has a normal life. And the thing is, as so well, he's actually got a wife and kids tucked away somewhere. But like the thing is, as well, without that mask on, nobody would know what he looks like. Exactly. So again, I'm going to reference 18 for a second because I just watched it like literally yesterday. There's a sequence in Halloween 2018 mm-hmm. where it's just prior to the bathroom scene where he's out of the sanitarium. He's not got the mask on because mm. he's not wear. He doesn't wear the mask in the sanitarium. The first shot you see of him in that movie is from behind and you see the side of his face as an old man. And then he's literally, they pull it, the two characters, the two podcasters, pull into a a, a petrol station and you see him, he's in the background in broad daylight, like two o'clock in the afternoon, walking behind them without the mask on and just like a t-shirt and trousers on. Uh And like nobody, because nobody knows, like they would know what he looks like because they've just met him in the sanitarium. But no one else knows what the fuck he looks like. Because when he killed on Halloween night, he had the fucking mask on. Nobody knows, and nobody knows in that 40 years, or in this movie, that 20 years, what he would have been up to. Mm-hmm. Like, has he got his own fake identity? Like, is he out, like, ha- does he have a fucking library card? Is he going to the library? See, in my head, only because I can't imagine him not wearing the mask, he wears, like, the Mike Myers mask, the Mike Myers mask still, but he's got like, a little fake moustache and a pair of glasses. Yeah. <laughs> and a wig. <laughs> and, well, no, a wig, he just combs his hair. He just combs him, he does, he does a fucking Superman, he combs his hair back. Mm-hmm. Obviously, no, no Superman doesn't comb his hair. Well, the hair, the hair on the mask isn't his hair. Well, no, I know that, hair. but he, he combs the mask hair back, <laughs> gels it down, puts on a pair of glasses, fake moustache, puts on a British accent, because why the fuck not? And, uh, like, he's got a wife, he's got little tiny little Michael Myers running around. They've yeah. all got little tiny Michael Myers masks that they wear. <laughs> like, it's genuinely baffling. <laughs> like, it's genuinely baffling for someone that spent so much of their life on this, in, the, in a sanitarium. Like, what has he been doing for this last 20 years? Like, I'm assuming, probably, like, just lurking. Just lurking because, about. Because for, him, because for him to have tracked down Marion Chambers mm-hmm. and, like, find all of the stuff in her house... And for him, for him to then know that Laurie Strode and Kerry Tate are the same person, you don't find out in this movie how he gathers that information. Because I very highly doubt Marion Chambers would have had that information. Mm-hmm. Because she was just a nurse. She would have no reason to know that Laurie became well, Kerry I Tate. Well, I think what it is implied is that the office at the house also has like all of Loomis's files. Yeah. So it's potential that Loomis could have known... Yeah. But I doubt he'd have put that down anywhere, like, on the off yeah. chance that Michael ever did find him. Exactly. Because I'd like to think, like, whenever, I, whenever I've whenever i seen any documentaries and bring it up, like, he always seems like a vaguely sensible dude mm-hmm. for a horror movie. So, like, I don't think it would have... And plus, everyone thinks she's dead. He has news articles stuck up around the room about her death yeah. in the car accident. And that's what I mean. Like, 
did, what? Like, why? Did, why is Michael even looking out, for her? Like, did he find out what cemetery she was allegedly buried in? Did he dig up her grave? Did he go to a coroner's office? Like, how the fuck has he found her? Like, Jason makes sense because that fucker never leaves where he is. Like, Jason's in Camp Crystal Lake all the fucking time. People just go to his area and end up getting murdered. He's not fucking. He's not thinking. Oh fuck me! That 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 girl that got away from me that one summer. I'll get in a car and I'll drive and I'll go and find her. Jason's got other shit to do. He's got a fucking garden to tend to. He's got a vegetable patch. He's got a summer camp to look after. Like, he's got a de- decomposing head of his mum to take care <laughs> See, of. When you just said that, then, do you know what my head supplied for me? You know the comic yeah. you sent me of him in his little short shorts as a camp counsellor. Oh, I love that. I love that cartoon. I don't know who made it. It was so, somewhere on the internet. It was delightful. Like, there are a lot of inconsistencies. Because, as I said, this... This whole level of, like, Michael Myers, for that 20 years in that, that he's been in that wilderness, is a massive grey area. And I feel like it's important to have at least shed some light. Because some of the other sequels, like, you see him, like, I think it's in part four or five, you know that he's been living out in the woods and he's been eating dogs. Mm-hmm. Because you see him, like, eating a dog and, like, living in the woods. Mm-hmm. So you, you know that he's, like, out there somewhere. He's not got a house. He's not got any of this he's literally just stalking the earth whereas with this movie disregarding all of those other movies it's never explained to you what the fuck he's been up to for 20 years and it's really frustrating it's a really stupid thing to think about because at the end of the day this is a bog standard 90 slasher it should not matter but at the same point it's, it's also a series so you kind of would like to know yeah. i mean this isn't like some fucking on. david fincher shit it's not like fucking zodiac like i don't need you to explain everything that he does but I would just kind of like a little bit of context as to... Because it seems like it was really fucking easy for him to find her. Like, considering how much she's gone out of her way to, like, basically erase her existence. Mm-hmm. it's And, like, move to a completely separate place. It seems like it's really fucking easy for him to find her in this yeah, movie. Yeah, definitely. Like, stupidly easy. Oh, yeah. Like, which is fucking baffling... Because the scene later, when she explained... Well, we'll get to... But when she's explaining who she is to people, and he's like, I heard that story, I knew that story, but he didn't know that she was... So people that she works with that are trained professionals, I assume she would have had a background check. This shit... Yeah, she's obviously put together, like, a really good... Like, like... this shit with her is like the shit in Valentine, where fucking Adam Carr is Jeremy Melton, and he's like... Managed to change his identity with nobody knowing. Mm -hmm. And, like, it's baffling that she became a fucking principal of a boarding school not even like a regular shitty fucking school like an actual high class top level school that people are paying thousands of dollars Mm -hmm. for their kids to go to and nobody knows that she's fucking laurie strode yet michael myers is able to figure this shit out like lickety split double quick and knows where the fuck she is in like 20 minutes Mm -hmm. like it's ridiculous i feel like i've i feel like i've thought way too much about this but I like the idea that he's got, like, maybe a side business. Like, I'd like to know what his life is after he kills her. This is another thing as well. Like, Michael Myers and Laurie Strode, especially in the new Halloween movie, are kind of, like, pitted as the Joker and Batman. The Batman cannot live without the Joker. The Joker cannot live without Batman. As much as Heath Ledger says in The Dark Knight, what would you do without me? He's like, Mm. you were like a dog chasing your tail. I give you a reason to live. I give you a purpose. And it's, again, never stated, like, what happens to either, like, Laurie or Michael if they kill each other. 
Like, if Laurie kills Michael, great, the monster's gone. It doesn't solve her trauma. Like, she's still going to be fucked up. She's still going to be like, this shit happened to me just because he's dead. She's not going to then, like, suddenly become super happy and forget all about it. She's still going to be plagued. Well, with... that's kind of the point of this movie a little bit, isn't it? Because as far like, Michael died. Yeah. In the second one. Mm-hmm. And she's still dealing with the trauma 20 years later to the point where she doesn't... Bl- I mean, obviously for reasons, because he's not dead. But, like, as far as the world is concerned, Michael Myers died. Yeah. And yet she's never dealt with that trauma she still believes he's alive yeah. and is still terrified he's going to show up yeah but as far as anyone is concerned like there is there as far as i am aware there is zero reason why she would still believe he was alive i know he is but that's not the point mm-hmm. there's not any reasoning as to why she would believe he's alive except for that internalized fear and yeah trauma. well it's kind of like explained in the like Actually, no, I'm going to save that point because that's a really good point to raise later when we're talking about something. But, again, like, if he kills her, like, if he gets what he wants and he kills Laurie Strode, then what the fuck happens to him? Does he then just cease to exist? Because the only thing that's keeping him going is the pursuit of Laurie Strode. And they kind of deal with that in Resurrection. Mm -hmm. Because at the beginning of Resurrection, he kills Laurie Strode within the first ten minutes of that movie. And then he, he goes back to his old home because that's where they've set up like this this entertainment thing and they're doing like the the look around the house and all that stuff so he just goes back to his house where he was when he was a kid where he murdered everyone and just fucking murders whoever's there but then after that point what happens to him does he just cease to be would he kill himself would he carry on killing other people what would happen to him yeah i mean i feel like probably he just focus on somebody else that's like the thing with like serial killers they always talk about like a serial killer who gets like incarcerated and then they've got one victim left and it's the person who put them there and the the thing that's keeping them going is the pursuit of that one victim that got away because they need to know that they've killed them Mm. but then what like what would happen if say for example in that 20 years between halloween 2 and this movie laurie strode got hit by a car and she died in a car accident technically she's dead but michael's not killed her like, what would happen then? Would he spiral but out I think, control? But I think it'd be like with anything, though. Like, if say, if that... We'll use a serial killer for an example, just because I feel like it's easier. So, like, there's always the one that got away. It's the person that escaped and got them caught, put them away. But the thing is, if they weren't caught, that person would have died and they'd have just moved on to a new target. Yeah. They'd have just hyperfixated on somebody else. And I feel like that's probably what would happen with Michael, is he would kill Laurie, and then he'd be like, okay, well, that's done. Oh, that one. That one over there. Yeah. And he just hyperfixate on somebody else because it's all he knows how to do. Either that or he takes up retirement and uh, hangs out in the woods. And like, but like the thing is, like, his, he, he kills a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And like, he kills a lot of people on his pursuit to get to Laurie. Mm-hmm. But like, a lot of the people that he kills aren't even necessarily connected to Laurie. So there is some kind of homicidal urge that's in part of his DNA that's not connected to her. Why does, he, she... why does he target her in the first place? So, in the original film's timeline, it's because that brother and sister. Like, he kills Judith, and then he, like... So he's trying to wipe out his whole family, basically. Yeah, basically. And then, like, there's the whole thing with Jamie Lloyd. Whereas, that's, that's the thing that makes him terrifying in the, re- in the reboot, the 2018 version, is because they're not brother and sister. He's just fixated like, on yeah, her. Yeah, he's just fixated on her for, for whatever reason. And we imagine it's because she's the one that got away. But... Yeah, it's it's fascinating. But I suppose that's like with anybody of that kind, though. Like, 
you look at, I don't know, oh, well, who's super famous for killing people? Like, Richard Ramirez. Mm -hmm. Like, there was no rhyme or reason to the people he killed. He just fixated and decided he was going, that was his target. And I think that's what makes people like him and mm -hmm. like Michael Myers in the 2018 so terrifying, is because there's no connection there. It's just they have decided that that person needs to die. Yeah. And it's it's terrifying. I kind of, I do kind of like the idea of not being siblings, though, because it does make it just that little mm -hmm. bit more scary of like a... Oh, fuck. There's zero reason for him to be going after her other than the fact that he failed to kill her the first time and he's determined to finish the job. Yeah. It's so weird. It's kind of like a almost a form of psychotic OCD. But it also makes it slightly more terrifying if he were to win as well, if he does finally kill Laurie, because with the original one of them being siblings, it's that focus of killing off his whole family. Mm -hmm. And I suppose he could go back and kill anyone who moves into the house that he grew up in, which would also make sense because that'd be a, like a trauma point for him. Mm -hmm. um, but if they're not related and he does win and Laurie dies, then he will still have that urge. Like he'll still want to kill people. He'll just hyperfixate on somebody else. Yeah. And then he will torment that person. And I think part of it as well is he enjoys torturing Laurie. I think there's a, I think there's a reason that she survived for yeah. so long. And I think it's because he quite enjoys that psychological trauma he causes. Mm. Because he's intelligent enough to realise what he's doing. Oh, yeah, 100%. And I think that's part of it. As I, and I feel specifically, I know these because it's part of the movie but also i feel like if if it was in the real world and it wasn't a film somebody like him would probably quite enjoy seeing the trauma that he has caused mm -hmm. and he'd probably like hold off on killing her and just continuously psychologically torture her because it does but like one of the other points that the film never really touches upon as well is like when when they obviously for the purpose of this film where they are siblings so you've got the three kids you've got judith myers you've got michael myers mm -hmm. and then you've got laurie strode who in the original film i don't think it's ever revealed what her name is you just know her as laurie strode because she gets adopted now the film never really deals with the idea of the psychological element being hereditary mm-hmm now, something like that isn't always passed down through generation, but you would think that there would be some kind of concern for her maybe thinking that John could turn out like that or she could turn out like that so, or where that kind of side of things comes from. I'm going to go with my uh, my A-level psychology that I didn't finish. Um, didn't get that a level but mm. i tried and um, so there's a whole concept of nature versus nurture mm -hmm. so there's it's an, it's an ongoing argument it's never proved really either way if either you are born like that or it is a learned yeah a learned um psychology so i fall very much on the nurture side of things so i i honestly think that people aren't born intrinsically evil but are nurtured to become that way. Yeah. So like you said, with them, the, I don't really know if you know, you learn a lot about his childhood in so the in original the, in movie. The, in the Rob Zombie one. In the Rob it's Zombie one. It's basically like, he lives in a fucked up household. The end. Yeah. Whereas in the original one, it's never like, yeah, you never so learn anything more about him. The thing is, is more than likely with something like that, is it's not a, a nature, a, a nature, it's not 
nature it would be mm-hmm. nurture especially if you go by the wrong zombie of like he was you know his abusive stepdad his mom wasn't around a lot she was a stripper um because he's been as a child trapped in a certain way that makes him think that is the way that people should be yeah. treated yeah and there's a massive, there's been an on like, for cent, like years and years, been an ongoing psychological debate as to whether we learn or are born. Yeah, whereas in like the, the original, it's just like Dr. Loomis is like, lol, he's evil. Like, he's pure evil. That's all he says is like, Michael's lol, pure evil. evil. Like, he's like, he's got the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes, the kid is pure evil. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that they never go down that route of, oh fuck, like, what if Laurie turned out like this? Or what if her kid turned out like this? Um, what would happen like what would happen if it was like a genetic thing it was like you know passed down from one of the members of the family thing is I feel like something like that is very unlikely to be genetic <laughs> because it could be something he was born with don't get me wrong like it could be specifically like he was was born with like an intrinsical part of his brain damaged because um, obviously there's certain parts of your brain that will control our behaviours and our view of how others should be treated. I don't know what part of the brain it is. I know it exists. I know it's definitely a thing. Mm-hmm. But like, it's basically like your humanity switch. And I suppose if you were born with that part not fully formed or damaged, or if you had an accident as a child and you hurt your brain, it physically damaged that part of your brain. Yeah, there's probably a good chance that you you know, would have a more, a higher likelihood to become a serial killer and a sociopath. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I, I've, I struggle to believe anything like that's genetic just because I, I never really believe that genetics particularly work that way mm-hmm. because it's a wild card guessing game on what kind of genetics you're going to get, in yeah. all honesty. Um, but yeah, I can see what you mean. Um, but yeah, no, I, I can get why it wouldn't be something. Because also as well, from everything, like, Laurie's quite a, a smart woman as well. I mean, she's a principal in this. You'd assume she's, like, you know, yeah. pretty smart. And I think as well, is if I th- you'd probably consider that. If that was something that you thought potentially, if I have kids, what if they turn out like Michael you'd probably have looked into the likelihood of that happening mm-hmm. and would have come up against the nature versus nurture debate and then gone, well, it's probably nurture because I didn't turn up like that, which means it's unlikely it's genetics. Mm-hmm. And also, as far as she's aware, <coughs> Judith didn't have those yeah. urges either. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting one. So, the movie... Yeah, <laughs> weird psychology debate in the middle of that for you. The, the movie starts with, ironically enough, uh, Kerry Tate, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. Laurie Strode, having a nightmare. Like, the movie pans into um, her classroom slash office. There's a pic- There's a lovely stock photo of uh, <laughs> Josh Hartnett on her desk yes. with a knife in it and then Laurie Strode written on the chalkboard just to drive the point home that that's who she is. She wakes up screaming, having a nightmare, which forces John to come rushing in. And he then goes to get like her medication after he's calmed her down, um, gives her a couple of pills. And then they kind of have like a bit of a breakfast debate because he's downstairs eating his breakfast, getting ready for school. Mm-hmm. She comes down, says that he's got mail, which is like a birthday card from his dad, which is two months late. And he's like, oh, cool. He sent me cash. This cash will be good for when I go on the school camping trip to Yosemite. And she says, well, you're not going. And he's like, yes, I am. And she's like, but you're not. 
And he's like, I am, and I'll tell you why. The reason is because you're going to realise that today is the day that you know that you've been strangling me and like basically like suppressing my adolescence and you're going to let me go. And then she's like, look, you're, you're getting dangerously close to the line. Let's sort it out. Mm-hmm. And it's the first indication you kind of get of the relationship that him and her have. And to be fair, it's a really good introductory scene to kind of Laurie at this point in her life and the relationship that she has with her son. Um, because their, their chemistry feels very good together. And mm-hmm. they're like, they actually, there are moments in this movie where you genuinely do believe that they are mother and son. Yeah. Um, which I, th- I think really helps the film. And I think these are the, these are the moments for me where it looks like Jamie Lee Curtis is actually invested in what she's doing and she actually looks invested in the character. Um, And I don't know if that's just because she is a mother in real life, so she kind of took some of her own um, kind of experiences or if it's just a case that, like, her and Josh Hartnett got on so well. Yeah. Like, they had an instant chemistry and I feel like it's a mix of the two. Mm -hmm. But... Yeah, their, their relationship is actually one of the most believable things in this movie. In a movie that's, like, full of not very believable things, their relationship is one of the things that kind of stands out the most as something believable to me. I think if I'm being completely honest, part of the reason why I like the mother-son relationship in this movie so much is actually because it reminds me of my own relationship with my own mum, mm. especially at that point in my life. Um you know, it, the vibe that they have with each other and the way they talk to each other is very reminiscent of how, like... You and your mum are with yeah, each other. Yeah, So I yeah, think I that's that. part of the reason why it's so believable to me. But, yeah, it's a really good introduction to kind of, as I say, where they're at and where she's at in her life. Um, from there, we kind of go to the school. And this is when you meet the rest of the young cast for the first time. So we meet... Uh, Josh Hartnett's character John's girlfriend Molly, as played by Michelle Williams, uh, we and then we meet Sarah and Charlie, played by Jodie Lynn O'Keefe and and Adam Highburn or whatever his name oh is. Oh my goodness! How many times are you going to manage to screw up that poor boy's name? Adam Handbird. Adam Handbird. 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 Hand. Oh, for fuck's sake. Um, yeah, and they're kind of like talking about the school trip and how who's going, who isn't going, why they want to go, why they don't want to go. Molly obviously doesn't want to go or can't go more to the point because their parents can't afford it. So they kind of come up with a plan of how they're going to stay at the school and maybe you know have their own have their yeah. own little break. I think Charlie suggests at some point a Roman orgy, which is you know typical of teenagers. I mean, it was things I was suggesting as a teenager, definitely. And then we kind of see see Laurie, Laurie Kerry, you know, at the school. Um, and then this is the first point after this where we meet um, LL Cool J's character, Roddy, mm. which is, he's the most hilarious character in this film. Like, I think, I think the fact that he got cast in this movie for diversity reasons, mm-hmm. and I'm not just saying that, like, I genuinely... Malak Akkad said the reason why they cast him in this movie is because horror movies always test well with African-American audiences and they had a chance to put an L Cool J in this movie and they thought it would expand the reach and expand the market for this film with the African-American audience. Yeah. Um, and then he admits they went a little bit too far with Resurrection when they got Buster Rhymes in it. But, I mean, for what he does in this movie, L Cool J is actually all right. I mean, he's pretty funny. Like, he does a lot of funny shit in this movie. 
Um, he's basically a smut writer. So he's a security guard of the school, but he's also writing erotic fiction. Yeah, because there's, there's another great line in this scene where he's on the phone to his missus and he's like reading bits that he's written to her and he says... Um, He's like explaining a woman to her, and his line is two tumultuous round melon breasts, which is hilarious because it leads her to ask what type of melon. Because <laughs> you hear her on the phone asking if it's like cantaloupes or watermelons or like, <laughs> but like because there's two scenes that happen around this. There's a scene where you first see Norma for the first time, and like you meet Will, Will. and they're like making out in their office, and he's all like, oh, "I'll see you at lunchtime," um, and then you see like. Um, Charlie and John try and convince LL Cool J's character Ronnie to let them break out the school so they can go for a little off campus. Yeah, that lunch. happens just after the tumultuous breast thing, doesn't yeah. he? And he's, he's like, like, he's, like, I can't let, he's like, I can't let you out. And he's like, how about if you just, you know, you press the button and you're not looking and oh, we escape. Mm-hmm. And then, so John and Charlie are out buying like a bottle of wine or something. Like Charlie steals a bottle of yeah, wine. Yeah, nicking some booze for their little um, then, Halloween party they're like, planning on hosting. Laurie's in a restaurant in a cafe with Will and she's like talking about like she starts trying to open up to him about her trauma but she doesn't really well because he's he's a guidance counsellor isn't he and she's kind of saying to him like she's tried everything like therapy the 12 step program and then he's all like I need the loo bye yeah it seems like any time the conversation between them gets gets vaguely serious vaguely like real or emotional he pieces out Mm -hmm. and to be fair he is the most piece of shit character oh i hate him i hate him so much absolutely the fucking worst but this is also the scene where they're out for lunch where you kind of get an inkling of um Kerry slash Laurie's alcohol dependency because mm-hmm. she's having a glass of wine over lunch, which is fair. If you know you want a glass of wine over lunch, you go for it. But she's literally just got a brand new fresh glass of wine. It's like she's like maybe taking a sip out of it. And while Will is in the loo, she calls over the waiter and says, "Could you bring me another glass of Chardonnay?" As she necks the glass she currently has. Yeah, which is like the first time you kind of get the inkling, along with. Um, earlier in the film as well and she's having the nightmare we see the cabinet full of medication as well which makes you very much aware of she does have kind of a a dependency on her medications Mm -hmm. along with then an alcohol issue like she's not coping well one scene we didn't mention before this is the toilet scene can we not talk about that scene i don't i don't like toilets public toilets at the best of times let alone uh creepy toilets but also this was a the the toilet the public toilet scene was weird for me to watch because it's literally just a male and female toilet. Yeah, it's literally like a, a in brick building in the, the middle of, of nowhere. nowhere. Yeah, it's like, literally on a on a side road. I'm assuming this is like a, a maybe not just an American like potentially any country like that is a lot bigger than England maybe mm. so probably like maybe Russia has them or Australia. Um, is Russia bigger than England? Russia's massive. Oh, I think it is. Is it not? It's not. It's, it's huge. It goes across like the entire top left-hand side of the map. Yeah, possibly. I failed maps at school. I failed maps. I mean, I didn't do well in geography, but um, yeah. And it's literally just this little building in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing around it at all. I think it's weird for us because when we think of public toilets, they're either in tourist areas 
like stretches of road where there's like a lot of bars and clubs or massive service stations yeah like we wouldn't be driving i think there's maybe a couple because i'm pretty confident there's one very similar to this out towards um sherwood forest Mm -hmm. but that's a campground yeah so you can like park up overnight with like your rv and stuff and stay there and there is a little building that is just like a toilets and a little showers i think but it's a campground. Like normally, there's quite a lot of yeah, people like there. Yeah, there's context for it being there. Whereas yeah. this is like literally in the middle of just nowhere. Just for no reason. It's not like there's any signage to say it's a campground or anything like that. But yeah, generally, like you go to a toilets. It's somewhere like on a seafront where you've got like, the pay toilets. Mm-hmm. In a train station, they have them. Down main drags of like places where you would go clubbing. So near us, we've got a set that's on like a main strip of like pubs and things but again this is another sign of michael's intelligence because he's obviously pulled over at this point gone into the toilet where the mother and her daughter are well, he's the already there isn't he because it yeah. pans around the car's already there the girl's toilets are locked so he's obviously had the idea of blocking one of the toilets so he's blocked the women's because obviously that's where they yeah. would be more comfortable so they have to use the men's toilets and he goes in and steals her handbag yeah. from underneath the toilet door, which is a sign of, like, he's obviously highly intelligent because he knows, A, where to go and B, like... And he does it as well without actually causing any damage to yeah. anyone. Also, he knows that he, he... he It's also the force of the car that he is using is stolen. And so also, he yeah, knows he, the police are going to be looking, looking for, for that, that car. car. Well, not necessarily because people who live in that house are dead, so they're probably not going to notice for a little while. But also, like the the tires are like worn out. Yeah, but they've like slashed the tires and stuff. If they think it's Michael Myers that's killed Marion Chambers, mm-hmm. then they're going to realise that he's probably taken her car. Mm-hmm. So that's why they're looking for the car. So it's another sign of that. I need to dump this car and get another car quickly. But he also. That when when they do the shoot, shoot round and you see the car, like the, they zoom in on the tyres, the tyres are all like slashed a bit, mm-hmm. so it can't be driven. In a time when you know there's not really mobile phones aren't particularly a thing, so he also has the foresight to be like, well, if I slash those tyres, whoever I steal a car from isn't going to be able to get away from here to then alert the police to let them know that I mm-hmm. now have that vehicle. Although I don't understand why mobile phones aren't a thing. This is 1998. We've seen fuckers using them in two screen movies and an urban legend movie before this. But yeah, but they weren't... <laughs> what, I'm, what, I'm, what, I, blah, 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 what I'm more saying is that they weren't as... Not everybody had them like they do now. But, and also as well is you wouldn't get a signal in a lot of places because they didn't mm-hmm. have as many towers. So that is a weird thing though. We, because in Scream, people have cell phones. Scream 2, they have cell phones. Urban Legend, they have cell phones. Mm-hmm. Yet in this movie, nobody has a cell phone. You're telling me, those rich boarding school fuckers, none of them's got a phone. Not a single one of those kids has got a mobile phone. And given how protective Laurie is of John, you would think that little Well, he knows he does, because she tries to call him later on and she says it's turned off. Does she? Is that a thing? Yeah, she tries to call him later on in the film. Hmm. I don't remember that. Yeah. Well, I don't well, know if she... I think she uses the house phone, but... Yeah. Either also way, living in a world see... where house phones are a thing. Yeah. Either way, you never see anybody... <laughs> oh, you never see anyone with a mobile phone. Yeah. But it is a weird... It is a weird thing, because, yeah, like, I can't imagine being anywhere now where we don't have mobiles. It's really weird. Yeah. Um. But, yeah. And I'm already creeped out by public toilets as it is. I don't like using them at the best of times. Yeah. But anyway, back to where we were in the story. So Charlie and John get caught um, as 
as Laurie's walking back to her car, she sees John, she calls him out. She's like, what the fuck are you playing at? You can't just have off-campus lunches today of all days. Like, sort your shit out. And he's like, you know what, mum, this is fucking bullshit. He's like, he's fucking dead. It's been 20 years. Like, if he was going to turn up, he would turn up by now. Like, sort your fucking shit out. Yeah, like you're suffocating me. And then, like, he says to her, he's like, if you want to stay handcuffed to your dead brother, like, that's fine, but you're not dragging me down with you. Mm-hmm. And then he, like, pieces out, but they get into a car together. She puts on the radio, Mr. Sandman plays, get that money, get that fucking royalty check for the second time that's played in this movie. Um, and she sort of laughs and turns it off. She... There's a really funny moment, because she drives back up to the school with the two kids... And like LL Cool J, uh, Ronnie is obviously there to let them back in. And she's like, where were you when these two snuck out? And he kind of looks at John and John's like, oh, and he's like, fucking, I'll sock you, man. Um, and then, yeah, you kind of see a little bit of that. But then from here, the movie kind of like starts to get ramped up a little bit because Michael eventually kind of like finds his way to the school. Well, he follows Laurie, doesn't he? Yeah. Because you see the car he's in pull up as they're driving into the school. Yeah, so he's obviously seen her. her. Yeah, yeah, and again, she's not living in Haddonfield at this point. So how is he like? How is he outside the actual exact restaurant that she's in having her lunch in this fucking car at, in broad daylight? Mm-hmm. Like, how does that tie? He was in a public toilet. Now he's like in a populated in California yeah like where what the fuck so he's also as well he's driven from Illinois to California at this point as well yeah and it's like the day before Halloween yeah in like less than a day yeah because it's what so when he kills Miriam it's like the 29th it's the 29th isn't it so it's two days before And then it's the day before Halloween when he sees her outside the restaurant or is it the day of it's the day of because she says the day of Halloween so yeah. like in less than 48 hours because it's night time once he's killed Marion. Yeah, it's so, true actually. Like, so it's, like, it's, it's, it's like, like it's the morning of the 30th when he, or late night 29th when he leaves yeah. Illinois. And like this is lunchtime on the 30th. 31st. In And they're in, what, California? Yeah. Which, yeah, that doesn't seem doable. That it's not. It takes thirty-one hours to drive from Illinois to California, and that's like from just the state to state, not dependent on where they are. Yeah, it's two thousand miles. Yeah, and he. So there's no way he has driven. Yeah. From one end to the other. In that busted ass car. In that busted ass car. Plus, he stopped off to wait for somebody to pull up at this toilet so he could seal their car. Yeah. He would have had to have refueled the car and possibly slept at some point. And he pulls up at the, and he manages to time it just perfectly. Yeah, and it's what it's like outside the. It's restaurant. like mid afternoon on the thirty. So say he left late night twenty ninth. Yeah, this is so twice. So, so we'll say what it's about eight o'clock. He leaves Illinois. So twenty four hours later is eight o'clock the night of the thirtieth. Yeah. So I suppose actually he could have done it because twelve hours later. So what's that? Thirty uh, thirty six at that point. It would be like eight a.m. in California. But he would have had to drive through the entire time. Different time zones as well. Are they in different time zones? Yeah, I don't know if like one's in EST and one's in PST. But either way, like there's no way he would have been outside that restaurant at the exact time like how would he have known he was going to be at that restaurant like 
has yeah, been, no. Has he been following her? But yeah, it's like, like so it's a, what, a 31 hour drive. He must have stopped for a nap at some point. Yeah. So I'm not being funny. He's definitely not inhuman enough to drive for. Yeah, like, like evil needs to sleep. Evil does need a nap. You know, and there's absolutely no way I would have known. I want to find a baby grow that says evil needs a nap. But you know what I mean, though? Like, it's it's so much coincidental bullshit. There's no way he would have shown up in that street at the exact time, outside the exact restaurant where she was, when he had no idea that that's where she was going to be. Yeah. He knew that she... He he, he must know that she works at the school because he... Ter- like. But then, to be fair, like I'm not even sure if he knows that she works at the school or if he just turns up there because he's followed her from the restaurant... That's the baffling part of how he knew she was at the restaurant at that exact There's moment. a series of questions here, though. It is, first of all, did you drive the whole way? Mm-hmm. Secondly, did you stop for a nap? How long did it take for the mother and daughter to show up at the toilets as well? Because you'd have to wait for somebody else to show mm-hmm. up with a car to trade them over. So that's like two things there. Like, you must have stopped to sleep. And I'm, I'm taking it, like, people don't go to that restrooms regularly. Yeah. Because they look a bit trash. And then also, like, during that time since you stole that car and headed off, you'd have had to find out A, where Laurie is now, B, what name she is going under, and C, have somehow known she was specifically going to be at that... There's a lot of there's a lot of plot holes here. So many plot holes. I reckon he's got a sidekick. I reckon Michael Myers has got a man on the inside. <laughs> it's Will. <laughs> yeah, it's like, a, it's like a scream situation. There's actually two killers. There's actually two like, he's Michael got, He's got to have somebody working with him, because otherwise this movie makes no fucking sense. It's just insane. Like, there, there must be so many things that just don't make... There's just so many things that don't make sense. Mm-hmm. And, like, after this, we get kind of, like, a bunch of superfluous scenes, really, don't we? We get some, like, more scenes of... Like, we see Molly doing dishes at the school. We see her in the classroom. She's talking... Because there's a really great scene where Kerry Tate slash Laurie Strode is talking to a class about Frankenstein and how Victor didn't have the energy to fight the monster. And, like, what was it that ultimately caused Victor to face the monster? And Molly says to her, he's like, well, it was out of necessity. Like, the monster's taken everything away from him. Like, it was out of fear. Like, Victor Frankenstein lost Elizabeth out of fear because he couldn't face the monster. So the monster ended up killing the woman that he loved and eventually he had nothing left. The only thing that was left was him and the monster and he had to face him eventually to end it. Um, And then, you know, you get the whole sequence of Laurie saying to to John, "Um, here's your permission slip, I'm going to let you go on the field trip. And he's like, oh goody, like I get to go on the field trip. However, he decides not to go and they're going to have like this romantic evening together and then you get a shot of like Laurie outside talking to Norma, which is a really lovely scene, actually. The scene of Jamie Lee Curtis and Janet Lee talking together is really cute. And like she says to her, she's like, if I can be maternal for a moment, and you get, you get to see them share that moment together. And there's a really cute moment as um, Norma's character walks off. Uh, a bit of um, Herman Menville's Psycho score plays, and she gets into a car that is the car that Marion Crane drives in Psycho, and to be honest, guys, my little heart when this moment happened, because I am such a huge Psycho fan. Like, Psycho is genuinely one of my favourite movies of all time. And to kind of get to see what would ultimately be one of her last roles together, sharing some screen time with Jamie Lee Curtis and that little nod to Psycho was actually really, really cool. Um, so I enjoyed that quite a lot. 
and then sort of Laurie's walking through the school because she but then this is the first instance where she thinks that she sees Michael and they pull this trick twice in this movie and it's fucking bullshit both the times they do it because she's doing a perimeter check and she sees a shadowy figure which, <laughs> which she thinks is Michael and then it turns out to be Will even though the shadow is obviously Michael and then she's like, oh, I'll, I'll see you, like, tonight. And he goes to do his thing. And then we get the scene that breaks the fabric of time. Because we get the scene where he goes into the room where Sarah and Molly are. And he says to the girls, what are you guys up to tonight? And now watching Scream 2, which means that Scream 2 exists in this universe. Which then you have to posit the theory that Scream 2 is a sequel to Scream. A movie where they're watching Halloween, which this movie is a sequel to, which completely breaks the fabric of time. But it's a nice reference to, hey, Kevin Williamson wrote both of these movies. Isn't he cool? Yes, he is. Big love to Kevin Williamson. Although I have kind of always posited in my head that Scream and Halloween, if you took the fact that they reference the watching of each other's movies in their separate franchises, I've always kind of posited that those two franchises actually could exist in the same universe. Um, I've always thought that there is an idea there where you could have a shared universe between the Halloween and the Scream movies. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, Scream was written by Kevin Williamson and Halloween is his favourite movie, which is why we get so many references to Halloween in Scream and throughout the franchise. But if you take, if you were to take a look at it and to take a look at the story there, and I'm, and I'm not suggesting a Ghostface versus Michael movie, but if you take the character, say, of Billy Loomis... It's not hard to think that his dad's father could be Dr. Samuel Loomis. We know that Billy was close to his mum, you know, as, as evidenced in Scream 2. And, you know, the fact that his mum walked out on him, which kind of caused some of his psychotic behaviour. But we know that, obviously, also Billy's dad is quite uh, aloof and quite, you know, emotionally unavailable to him. It's not hard to think that, you know, Samuel Loomis left the family to pursue Michael and that was kind of, you know, he walked out on his son to pursue this this killer and to pursue the serial killer, which is what made his son kind of emotionally distant and then pass that on to his son, who was displaying some of the similar psychopathic traits that Michael had, but he missed that by walking out on his own son. And you can kind of connect some of the dots there to, to maybe think that they exist in the same universe. Yes. Um, you know, I just really want to see Jamie Lee Curtis and Nev Campbell on screen together. If I'm being perfectly honest, I think that'd be fucking dope. Um, but yeah, I've always thought that Scream, in my head, my head canon is that Scream and the Halloween movies always existed in the same universe. And I've always kind of thought that, but that's just me. Um, and then, yeah, after this, you get one of the most egregious scenes in the entire movie. And I really, really fucking hate this scene with a passion. So yeah, this is the moment where the film starts putting all the pieces into motion. We've got Michael on and around the school grounds. We've got Laurie and Will in Laurie's apartment, which is on the school grounds. Mm -hmm. And you see the kids breaking back into the school because they're going to hold this like romantic Halloween dinner like in the basement area of the school. It's mm -hmm. like never really said where this part of the school is or what the fuck it is. It's like an old janitorial area or something. So, yeah, I think so. It's like the the basement part of the school, mm -hmm. isn't it? So they basically have put the mood, like all the pieces back into place. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to say as well that this is a really long... There's a really long period of time in this movie when no one dies. Mm -hmm. Because you've had the three kills at the beginning and we're maybe like an hour into the movie now, hour and ten minutes-ish, because it's a very brisk movie. And like we've not had another kill since. The movie is 
all just putting the pieces into place. It's all just like getting everybody from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. And then I think towards the end, obviously, they're just like, we'll just start bumping everybody off in the last sort of 40 minutes. Yeah, there's also a little moment just before like everyone's kind of settled into place, like just before Will shows up at Laurie's apartment, where we get the second uh, Laurie Strode has an alcohol issue moment where we see her go to the fridge and get a bottle of vodka and just drink yeah straight vodka and they really they've done it i don't want to say it's subtle but they've not really discussed the fact that she has a problem with alcohol mm-hmm. but they've tried to like put the nods in there that she does have a problem yeah but they never address it it's the same with obviously what is quite obvious at the beginning of the movie is her like um dependency on her medication mm-hmm. they don't actually address it at any point they just give you the nods that it's there and then they never speak about it see my main issue and we're going to talk about it now because one of the most egregious scenes in the movie comes up where will's in her house and they're kind of like making out a little bit and she starts trying to explain to him who she is and she's like you know i have to be honest with you i'm not who you think i am and he's like, well, who are you? And she's like, I'm Laurie Strode. Like, my brother killed my sister, like, etc. And all the while, she's trying to have this deep and meaningful conversation with him. And she feels, I would say in this instance, she's quite vulnerable. And she feels like she can express this feeling to someone that she finally feels that she can trust. Mm-hmm. He, All he's concerned about is fucking having sex. Yeah. And it's the most off-putting thing. Because... It feels like this film wants to give you the very base level of, look, our character has trauma, she's drinking, that's how you know everything is wrong. Mm -hmm. And any time she tries to explain to someone why she feels the way she does, she's met with a negative reaction. Like, her son doesn't believe See, her. Her son rejects the idea. With, this guy is the biggest fuckboy in the history of oh, fuckboys that's ever fuckboyed. With her son, I can kind of understand it. Because he wasn't born until after the whole Michael Myers thing had happened anyway. And he just kind of sees the damage it's continuing to do to his mum. Mm-hmm. And he also feels like, because she experiences trauma, he is now trapped and no... he's, you know, he's a he's a teenager. He's only supposed to be what, like maybe seventeen. So I can kind of get his attitude towards the Trump because he does support her in his own ways. Like he's the one who wakes her up from nightmares. He makes sure she gets her medication she needs. But it's not something I would ever expect somebody as his age group to really grasp or understand exactly what's going mm. on. Um, but yeah, Will has zero excuse and it's so uncomfortable to watch because she is, it's the only moment in the movie where she is honestly very, very vulnerable mm-hmm. in front of somebody. Yeah. And it's kind of played off as a bit of a joke from his end. And it's also the way like when she says it, because she tells him his her name and then she mentions about her sister and then... Um, eventually he goes, oh yeah, I kind of remember that being a thing. Yeah. But like, while she's telling him, he's like, oh, just take your clothes off. And yeah. I'm like, come on, man. Like... Yeah, it's not comfortable to watch. But also, like, this was a very famous case, you would assume, in this world. Mm-hmm. Like, national news level famous. Like, a kid killed his sister and then came back to get revenge on the rest of the family. You would assume that would have been, like, 
national news. Yeah, and Laurie Strode was meant to have died in a car accident. Yeah. And she's now and yet, sat on his lap telling him that she is like... And yet Laurie he doesn't Strode. even... It doesn't even register because he's he's just very dismissive of what she's saying because it's getting in the way of him... Getting his, his dick wet. Fucking dick in her. Which because, is just horrendous. Yeah, and the thing is, as well, as well, I feel like we're supposed to like Will. Like, he's mm-hmm. supposed to be a sympathetic character to us. And I literally was spent this movie counting down the minutes until he was going to get killed. Yeah, because he's a, he's a fucking novice. He's an asshole. And he's he's not a nice person. Um, and also, he's supposed to be a fucking counsellor at the school, which means that he has basic therapy training, I would assume, to yeah. be a school counsellor. And yet he's not caught on to any of the warning signs that Laurie is struggling. Mm-hmm. He's not caught on to literally anything that... Cause you, with things like... With like that, I'm I'm pretty confident there would be warning signs for an adult of like, hang on a second, something is wrong here. Mm-hmm. Like I could understand her son not seeing it because he's a... I mean, you know, he's 17-ish, but he's a kid. Yeah. Like, it's not something you would pick up on as a child, irregardless of how old you are. Until you are grown up enough that that becomes a potential in your own life, or you know people who've gone through it, it's not something you would pick up on. But as a grown-up, and as a counsellor especially, you would assume he would have seen signs that she was struggling mentally. Yeah, and I think, if I'm being perfectly honest, this movie is very irresponsible in the way that it deals with trauma mm-hmm. and abuse and the way that it deals with, like, self-medication. Like, the thing is, there is a way to kind of deal with these things in films and to write characters that feel real and to feel like they are going through these situations. Mm-hmm. I mean, prime example is... You look at the way that um, Tony Stark is dealt with mm-hmm. in Iron Man. Oh, yeah, Man. definitely. Like, you, you look at the way that his character is written with his post-traumatic stress and his potential dealings with alcohol. I mean, it's a kid's franchise, so they never really deal with, like, his alcoholism full, but they, full belt. They but do they, address it. Yeah, they deal with his, like, post-traumatic stress. They deal with, you know, he feels like a very real character. Whereas in this, and I know this is a movie that's written in the 90s, the writers do the bare minimum. They're like, oh no, she's going into a fridge and behind her pizzas is a bottle of vodka. That is supposed to explain to us that she's an alcoholic or that yeah. you know she has substance abuse issues. But or... it's, it does also feel a little bit like they literally looked at a textbook for like a textbook case yeah. of um, like traumatic stress mm-hmm. trauma. And they went, oh yeah, right, that's it. So make her drink vodka and eat her, drink two glasses of wine at dinner and like put a load of bottles in her cupboard to make it look like she's also dependent on medicine. And the thing is, is as a textbook case, that makes sense because it is like the the quintessential, like this is a textbook of what this Mm -hmm. looks like. But it rarely actually would look like that. Mm -hmm. One of the things as well that it doesn't show is it never shows her actually having any sort of breakdown. Yeah, no. Um, 
there's the moment where she thinks that she sees him for the first time and she kind of like cringes a little bit and she kind of shakes it off but you never actually see any moments of her having sort of the negative like it, it, it all very much seems like she's an alcoholic but she's well enough adjusted that she can live a normal life that nobody at this school suspects that she's an alcoholic or has alcohol issues or trauma issues yeah and it never shows you the actual effects of the trauma as it wears away on your psyche now i know that everybody deals with trauma in different ways Mm -hmm. and i know that everybody has different types of um, you know like alcoholism or medication dependency you know post-traumatic stress disorder it's not a blanket thing it affects everybody differently Mm -hmm. speaking from experience when i was struggling with issues of alcohol there were days when and like especially when i dealt with depression there were days when i physically couldn't get out of bed there are days when the, the 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 alcoholism and the mental things that I was going through was so crippling, I physically couldn't leave my house. Mm-hmm. There was a period a few years ago when I literally didn't leave my house for three weeks because it was just so hard. And to, to be honest, I never went through something that this character, like even akin to what this character yeah, was supposed the, the, to be going the, through. Yeah, you didn't go through that level like, of trauma. I was, I was living with depression and mental health issues that caused me to you know, self-medicate, and it is a really difficult thing when you are in it, you cannot see the forest for the trees. And that's kind of my my main issue with this film, is it shows... The bare that, minimum. Yeah, it shows that she can live, for the most part, like a normal existence. Like, if if she was as terrified as they made out in through her characterization and her dialogue that she is... There are moments where she she would have there would be that scene where you would see her break down. She would have more of a visceral reaction to thinking that she's seen him for the first time. Especially as well, I feel like with the movie being set on Halloween itself, yeah. like that would be a super triggering day for her. I mean, even me, like there, there's been. I, I feel like everyone at this point is probably medicated on something anyway but like with me when my mental health's really bad and it doesn't even have to be like a specific day there are certain days that are more difficult for me just because of personal stuff but like there will be days where i can't leave my my house i I can't physically get out of the front door because i just i can't that's terrifying to me and i feel like like with my like i have certain days where my mental health is a lot worse and I would be, and am indeed, a complete mess on those days. And this isn't even anything, I mean, it's personally traumatic, but yeah. not not in the way of, like, my brother trying to murder me traumatic. Although I wouldn't put it past either of my brothers to try and kill me <laughs> at some point. Um, but, like, on those days, I, I, like, my, you, you've seen what I get, like, on certain days. Like, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to leave the house. Sometimes I can't even get out of bed. And, like, I feel like for Laurie, as the character she is portrayed now, Halloween would very much be that day. Yeah, like, she wouldn't be going to work. She probably wouldn't be... Leaving the house. Like, out in broad daylight. She wouldn't be doing anything. She would be... She would be more affected by the situation. And, I mean, don't get me wrong. I know stuff like that affects people differently. Mm -hmm. And there's no blanket 
that is how you would behave but i i feel like with something like that and specifically what happened to her on halloween that would probably be the one day of the year where either she would be super like everything is fine and really on point and everything nothing is phasing her because she's so focused on getting through that day or she would be in bed yeah but then the film tries to have its cake and eat it too because from that point you kind of see them have the conversation then we get the scenes after this with the kids where the kids start getting bumped off one by one because after this point the film really ratchets up she realizes that obviously john it's john 17th like birthday you know and he's at the same age that she was when Michael came after her. Then you get the whole sequence. So Charlie gets bumped off. Then you get Sarah they, getting bumped they off. They do a really... Um, I had to turn away because they do a fake out when Charlie gets killed. <laughs> yeah, with his and, like He thing. drops the corkscrew into the trash compactor. Mm. Trash compactor? No. Yeah. It's like a the the, the, the the thing in the, the sink, grinder the grindy yeah. bit in the sink. We don't have that in England. I don't know. It's a weird. I'm, I'm sure some houses have yeah. them now, but as a general rule, it's not something that exists. Mm. Even when I've worked in restaurants, we don't have them. I've never yeah. seen them before. But he like has his hand in there trying to get, and I had to look away because I was fully expecting it to turn on his yeah. hand get. Well, originally that was the idea. Jamie Lee wanted that to be a kill where he got his hand mangled up and he pulled his hand out and it was all like flesh hanging off at the side and they said no. So he gets killed, then Sarah finds his body in the lift, she gets sliced in the leg and she gets hung up very Casey Becker style by like a light Mm -hmm. bulb. And that's when Molly and John find her and then that's when the whole third act of this movie kicks in. Because obviously when Charlie confronts Michael, that's when we see the CGI mask. <laughs> that fucking CGI fucking mask, hilarious. man. But this is, like, the reason why I'm rushing over this is because I want to get to the, the actual pivotal point of this film because it very much goes by what we've just talked about. So John gets... John and Molly run from Michael. John gets stabbed in the leg. <laughs> Sorry, I've just read my series of notes for this little bit from them finding the body. And it says, Why the fuck would you follow a trail of blood? Are all horror films teens dumb as fuck? And then literally a little break and then, oh, look, it's your uncle. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, Michael's Michael's the slowest man on earth. He's He follows he follows John and Molly. They basically <clears throat> open this, like, locked door. Molly drops the keys. They're banging on the door to, to get the other side. He Michael's, like, slicing at them with a knife, trying to get through this, like, gated door. And he realises they've dropped he the keys. He realises the keys are on the floor. And then it's this moment when Laurie appears, she opens the door and it's got one of those porthole windows in it. And this is the moment that everybody's been waiting for. This is the moment where her and Michael come face to face for the first time in 20 years. Mm -hmm. And she sees Michael for the first time and Michael sees her. And this is kind of what we were saying just a minute ago. It's almost like the minute she sees him, the film just decided that she had to go into heroin mode. So the film drops any pretense that she has the trauma and she just suddenly is okay and she can fight she can fight him. See, and that's really insulting. It, uh, see, it's a really interesting point in the movie because obviously up to this point they're like, she's really struggling, the trauma's got too much, like she's dependent on alcohol, she's dependent on medication, like she's not coping with her trauma but i do feel like i'm pretty i I can't actually speak from a psychologist's point of view because my psychology knowledge is very thin on the ground but i'm pretty confident there is something in which um you will struggle a lot until you're back in kind of the situation that gave you the trauma in the first place because you have that natural reaction of like this is 
I know how to do this. I've done this before. I can do this again. Um, and you sometimes can like, your brain just kind of clicks back into place and you kind of know how to deal with it because you've already done it. And yet it was traumatic, but your brain goes into like a defensive mode of mm-hmm. this is how you survive the first time. This is what we do now because it's your brain trying to defend itself. Um, so but the fight or flight thing. The fight or flight, yeah, definitely, massively. But I did find it really interesting that they kind of built up this whole, like, she's not coping well, it's really traumatic, it's been a huge struggle to then go, they're going to fight. Yeah. And she's totally okay. She's She doesn't freak out, she doesn't spook, nothing. She very much is like, right, this is what we need to do here and now. Yeah. And I don't know if maybe that is... I, I could ima- I could imagine that being probably a psychological thing that would actually happen, mm-hmm. um, but again, my my like outside of I did my first year of my A levels and a lot of that has now escaped my knowledge. Um, but yeah, it is a weird switch around. But also the character, as I always imagine Laurie in my head, this movie doesn't portray her as the way I think of her. Yeah, because in my head. I think of her as being a very, very, very strong character. And I think of her coping with the situation a lot more like she seems to have done in the 2018 version. Mm-hmm. Of she is convinced Michael is still out there. So she has gone into survivalist mode. She has learned to shoot a gun, how to survive another attack. Yeah. Like that's, especially because she's so convinced Michael is still alive. Like that is always how I kind of imagined her character behaving in that kind of situation. And that's kind of another thing that's missing from H2O is, again, much like what we said, what's he been doing for 20 years, preparing to come face to face with her again. You get no indication that Laurie's prepared for him to turn up again. Oh yeah, no way at all. The only the only thing that the movie gives you is that she's a bit paranoid that he's still out there, but you get no sense again that what what would happen if he did turn up mm. and then you you get your answer at the end of the movie and i kind of wonder actually now that i'm thinking about it if the reason why she goes into that mode is not because of herself it's actually her maternal instincts kicking in maybe because she's not defending herself at the end of this movie no she's defending, she's defending john yeah because he come he comes after john and she's got john to think about and i wonder if that's what the overriding emotion is it's not her self-preservation. It's like, I'm not fighting for me. I'm fighting for the safety of my son. Yeah, well, that is something that happens. Because that's you what they see talk the about, stories. like, women who, like, can lift, lift cars for babies. Yeah, because and... your adrenaline just yeah. is like, and I my if, child I is a danger. I wonder if that's kind of the angle that they went with. Because there's the scene where she puts Michael and Molly... Uh, not Michael, she puts John and Michael... Uh, John, John and, and Molly. Molly in the car. <laughs> and she says, go down to the Beckers. She breaks... The lock on the get the gate. We're not so. quite there yet. We're not quite there yet. But I know the thing. Yeah, and she grabs the axe because yeah, we we are basically. She... We've, we've missed. We've missed. Well, yeah. Okay. So she's she's in the she's in the thing with Michael. Um, she like yeah because they, they she, she's running through the thing. She puts John and Molly in a cupboard and says, "Look, stay there." And as she's walking through the corridor with Will, she says, "I'm not going anywhere without my son." She said, "I need to make sure that." My son, my is, son safe. is safe, yeah. And then you, they pull the shadow trick again because you're supposed to believe that the shadow walking up the stairs is Michael, even though it's fucking LL Cool J, and those two guys look nothing alike. And will like straight up, it's like six bullets. Yeah, in LL Cool J. Which well, is, around LL Cool J, he's a bit of a shit well, shot. Yeah, it's like a fucking stormtrooper. And um, they find out that it's obviously Ronnie. 
Um, then Michael pops up behind... Behind Will. Behind Will and gives him the nurse from Halloween 2 kill of the knife in the back, the twitchy death. She sort of runs from him and then sort of does this really clever thing because she kind of shoots at him but then like puts blood on one of the cupboard doors to make it think that she's in the cupboard. So when he gets back up again, he stabs through it. She sneaks up behind him, hits him with a fire extinguisher, bangs on the other door where John and Molly are, runs to the outside with John and Molly, puts them in the car, bashes the thing so that the gate locks. There we go. And literally picks up an axe and then that's it. Like the last part of this movie is the fight scenes between Laurie and Michael. Mm -hmm. And now at this point, obviously John is far, as far as she knows, John is far, far away from here. Um, which again leads to another plot hole, which I'm going to talk about in a moment when we get there. And then you get kind of, she goes back into the school with the axe. Michael does the really cool thing where he comes down behind like, her, like on the pipe. With this moment, because A, this is a really cool shot there. shot of her walking up with the axe is a great shot and it looks amazing. But why did Michael assume she was going to come back? As far as he is concerned, she's pissed off with her son and Molly. Like her John and Molly are i here but he's what doing one-armed pull-ups in the school just waiting for somebody to wander past so he can kill them but then as we said earlier on in the episode they have to finish each other yeah so michael's she, in there getting yeah. his gains <laughs> she he knows that she's coming back because he knows that she has to finish. like she, they orbit each other yeah like, they, he, he knows as well as she does this doesn't end until one of them is dead this is kind of my brain literally when you were like they orbit each other like they need they like you her earlier had the Batman and Joker thing my brain went yeah like Perry and Dr. Doofenshmirtz <laughs> <laughs> from fucking Phineas and Ferb the fucking platypus mate and like to be fair the fight sequence in this this whole end of the film is it's pretty lacklustre like she, she, she hides under a few tables he throws the tables about she stabs him with a flagpole um, they end up upstairs. Um, she she, like, she lobs some knives at him. Yeah, she. They're in the kitchen. She throws a like drawer full of knives at him. She stabs him. He falls off of the ledge. He falls through a table. She puts pulls one knife out of him and is about to put another one in him when Ronnie randomly appears. What I don't get about this sequence though is so she stabs him on the balcony. She's hot. She's got two knives. Yeah, because woman has got like, her two knifey jobby, which is fair. But she stabs him. And he falls off the balcony and smashes through the table, hits the floor. So she now has one knife. Mm-hmm. She drops the knife she has. Like, you have thrown knives at this dude. You've stabbed him with a flagpole. Like, he's taken a lot of damage at this point, which you would think would have slowed him down a little bit, has it? Yeah. But she drops the one remaining weapon she has because... He's obviously dead because I stabbed him and threw him mm. into a table. I'm pretty confident after seeing all of the other damage he's taken, that would not kill him. Yeah. At least in my brain, I would have kept a hold of my weapon. Yeah. She then goes downstairs, so she takes her eyes off of him. She goes downstairs, and I was fully expecting for her to get downstairs and him not be there. Yeah. Like, no word of a lie. I had fully anticipated him yeah. like then coming from behind her to try and take another swipe. But he is still there. He's still on the table. He's still down. She then... He's still holding the knife that he's been using. She leans directly over a space in which he could easily then take a swipe at her with this knife. Which, again, my brain was like, he's going to fucking stab you in a second. Like, that's a really dumb thing. 
she doesn't like kick the knife out of his hand. He's still holding it. So if he wasn't dead, he could have easily. Yeah. To then pull the knife out of him. And like my brain, you can tell how many like crime things (laughs) I've watched. It's like, you never drop your weapon ever. This is me from me watching like Criminal Minds and fucking murder documentaries. And always remove the weapon that they still have available to them. Like, just she, because she should have just A, held onto the knife she had, B, kicked that knife out of his hand because he still has a a weapon. You fucking run him through with a flagpole earlier on and he's fine. Why did you assume a knife, a singular stab wound, and you throwing him off a balcony, which is what a story, it's not even that high, would have killed him? Or at least put him out enough that, like, he was no longer an issue for you. Mm. It's not smart in the slightest. No. And also, you'd have been running on a lot of adrenaline, which means you'd have been fully in your fight or flight mode. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty confident your body's fight mode, the last thing it would do is let you drop your only viable weapon. Mm Please continue, sorry. I just got really angry about that. It's fine. And then Ronnie turns up, tells her to stop, it's yeah, over. Yeah, because she's about to annoy like, him again, isn't she? All the, all the paramedics are there, the police are there. And being tended to by the police are John and Molly. So where the fuck did they go? Definitely not down to the Beckers. They might have gone to the police. So they're, they're like on the fucking grounds. She she sees him being loaded onto a, like... What's the, the... Morgue van. Yeah, like... The coroner's van, there we go. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, and then she pulls she pulls a gun out of a cop's pocket, grabs the, the axe, axe get, tells him to load him into the van, and drives off with him in the van. He starts. And no one tries to stop no, her. No, not a single person tries to stop her. Not a single person goes after her. Um, she so he starts moving around in the body bag. She slams on the brakes. He goes flying through the window. She sits there and waits for him to sit up. Yeah, she's like, get up. So she get drives. Up towards him, knocks him over, and then runs the car off a cliff and pins him against a uh, trunk. Tr- tree trunk. He, like, looks at her, reaches out his hand, and then she takes his head off. And then now, that's how the film ends. I have an issue with this scene, because I know how resurrection sucks. So, just before you go into that, for context, she was seen decapitating him, but Kevin Williamson wrote a scene that starts the beginning of resurrection that explains how he's still alive after being decapitated. So it shows, and they shot this after, like, literally the, the day after they wrapped production on H2O. Mm-hmm. You see Michael wake up in the school, paramedic comes in, he pins the paramedic against the wall, crushes his larynx, kills him, and then swaps outfits with him. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the film, the person that Laurie actually decapitates is a paramedic, paramedic, random paramedic, and you see Michael back at the school walking off in the paramedic's uniform off screen to, mm-hmm. to, to live to fight another day. So there's a couple of issues I have with this ending, especially in light of what happens at the beginning of Resurrection. Firstly, I know Michael crushed his larynx of the paramedic. It's not a fucking paramedic, it's Michael, but whatever. If that is in fact the case, and it was a paramedic under that mask the entire time, why did the paramedic not just take the fucking mask off? First of all, I mean, I know she doesn't know what Michael looks like, but that would have probably given her pause if he then yeah. just took the mask off. It was like a completely normal looking dude underneath. He'd be like, hang on a fucking second. Mm-hmm. And also it would then have been easier to be like... Yeah, 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 yeah. Not Michael. Also, he at no point makes a movement to be like, don't do it, I'm not Michael. He just does like a little hand, like... Yeah. No. Um, but also, like, there's so many points 
in this final sequence that make it completely implausible that it is in fact not Michael. Mm-hmm. His behaviour in the coroner's van, first of all, zero reason for uh, the coroner to beha- the paramedic to behave like that if it is not in fact Michael. Mm-hmm. He does the Michael fucking sit up, yeah, which. Any normal person ain't going to sit up like that if they've been thrown out or something. You're going to roll over onto your front and push yourself up slowly because you're probably in quite a bit of pain after being launched through a fucking window. And then thirdly, Laurie looks directly into his eyes before she kills him. Yeah, and you've seen his eyes throughout this movie. Like, if this is the man that has haunted your nightmares and made your life a living hell, basically your entire adult life, You've had numerous nightmares. You would remember those eyes because they're the only fe- facial feature you ever actually see that are actually yeah. his, mm-hmm. are his eyes. You would know everything about those eyes. You would know exactly what they look like. There is no way you would mistake anybody else's yeah. eyes for his. The thing is, though, like in the context of this movie, if resurrection never happened, it all makes sense. It's the retcon of resurrection that makes none of it make sense. Oh yeah, no, in yeah, in because the context of this film whole, alone, the whole it makes of sense. The film, you are led to believe that's Michael and that she's killed him because that's what she wanted, and that's before they greenlit the sequel. That's what would have been the end. And also, as well, it would make sense that that would be how she would end it because there yeah. was no way she would have honestly believed he was dead until she had physically. Yeah, there's no way from, you, can come you can't back. come back yeah. from having your head chopped off. Yeah, you can't come back from heading. And like, she needed that closure. So in context of just Halloween H two O, it makes sense. Yeah. But then you add in what happens in Resurrection, and the whole thing falls to pieces yeah, like it's that. Fucking ludicrous! It's ridiculous. Yeah. But like to be fair, like this movie, this movie is one of those movies. I have an extreme amount of nostalgia for it because I did love it as a kid. I think watching it as an adult, you kind of realise that it isn't a great film. Like, if you take it as a a, a post-modern, uh, post-scream, cheesy 90s slasher, it, mm-hmm. it works. There's long periods where nothing happens. It's a bit dull where no one's dying. The body count's a bit low and it's a bit bloodless. Um, but it kind of works for the most part. I think, the, I think if you take a look at it as kind of more of a character study and look at Laurie Strode and how she deals with her trauma. I think there are films that have come out, especially in the last couple of years, that have dealt with trauma a lot more respectfully and a lot more um, accurately. Halloween H2, Halloween 2018, definitely. She feels like a much more rounded character and it deals with generational trauma because it deals with how, obviously, her becoming a survivalist affected her relationship with her daughter, that then affected her daughter's relationship with her daughter, and then Laurie's relationship with her granddaughter. And it's dealt with a little bit more seriously, and you actually see those moments where she's breaking down, where she can't hold things together, and like how that's affected her life and how that's affected her. And there's a really great scene in that, actually, where the two true crime podcasters are interviewing her, and they're explaining how... Michael needs to be understood. They need to know why he did this. You know, he's a human being. Like, we need to understand what's caused him to do this, why he chose you. But they're saying to her, well, you have a failed marriage. Like, when did you regain custody of your daughter? Like, when did you... This, that, and the other. And she's like, so he murders, like, seven people, but he's a monster that needs to be understood. I have a divorce and a strained relationship with my daughter, and I'm a fucking basket case. Like, what the fuck? 
and it's all about how they're willing to sympathise with a monster rather than the victim, and it's all about like the victim shaming and how well it it basically it's the murder it's the murderer and victim equivalent of well what were you wearing yeah and that's it's really one, like I think that's really interesting that they went that way as well because it's something. I've said a few times, I don't know if I've ever said it to you, but I know I've mentioned talking about it with the girls, is you look at any case like that and everyone's so focused on figuring out why the murderer did it. So in the case of, like, Richard Ramirez, everybody like that, like, the the famous serial mm-hmm. killers. But, and I'm as guilty of it as anyone, nobody remembers the victims. Mm-hmm. Ever. And it's really interesting in that kind of... It's a very similar kind of thing. Like they're trying to sympathise with Michael, but then there's no sympathy there there for the yeah. victim of his crimes. And I find that with a lot of cases like that, is it, it becomes very much the focus of the person who did those crimes, and people don't remember the names of the people who were the victims of those yeah. crimes. And I think also trauma is explain, explained very well. The Invisible Man is a very good exploration of trauma. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to kind of what I was saying about there's moments where Cecilia can't leave the house because she's now got agoraphobia. She's scared if she leaves the house, even though this person who abused her is seemingly dead and to the world at large, he mm. is dead. She still has that lingering fear that he is there. And that is an, a tremendous exploration of... The damage it does to someone's yeah, psyche. and the same yeah. with like Hereditary and the way that Hereditary deals with grief and like... The way that grief rips apart an entire family is also really, really well done. Mm. So I think that in in horror especially, and I think, like I said, I think Halloween 2018 was kind of Jamie Lee Curtis's way of doing a similar story, but taking it a little bit more seriously and dealing, you know, kind of a little bit more depth and a little bit more kind of like compassion and empathy towards Mm -hmm. the way trauma victims are dealt with. Yeah. I mean, this film hasn't aged very well, I don't think, for a a lot of different reasons. See, there's so many problems with this movie in general. Um, And I feel like, as well, for the kind of movie it is and the era in which it was released, it suffers a lot for the lack of kills. Yeah. Because, obviously, like, the 90s were very much, like, the slasher era. Yeah. And you'd watch these movies and, you know, you'd have, like, 10, 15 teenagers all getting... Yeah, and they'd all be really gory. And they'd all be really gory. Or even if there was a smaller amount of kills, there was a lot... more memorable. More memorable. Or there'd be a lot more, like, kind of, like... uh, It was less, like... How to put it? Like, slightly more, like, uh, psychological stuff going on. Yeah. And I think this movie definitely struggles for the kind of movie it is in the era it was released. What are your final thoughts? Like, what's your final score on this movie? Um, I'm going to give it a two. I didn't enjoy it. And not even in a way of, like, it terrified the life out of me. I just didn't enjoy it. And also, like, because I've grown up being so scared of Michael Myers, I think it's a really disappointing introduction to his character yeah. because he's not very good in this. Um, I'm sure that'll probably change when we finally get around to watching the original Halloween movies. Mm. Undoubtedly, I'm going to have nightmares for weeks. But, um, yeah, it's it's just, it's not a good movie. And it's not a movie I would... Go, like, the thing is, it's a bad horror movie. It's not a particularly scary horror movie. And like, it's not even so bad it's good. Like, I wouldn't <laughs> go back and watch it. Like, there are certain horror movies that I, I love purely because they're so yeah. dreadful, like Valentine. But it's so bad it's good. This is not. It's no. just bad. 
I think of all those movies that Kevin Williamson was involved with at that time, this is the weakest. Yeah. Um, but I think that's because Scream and Scream 2 are so good. Mm-hmm. And I think even to a lesser degree, I Know What You Did Last Summer is pretty good. Um, yeah. And I really like The Faculty. So I think this is kind of like the weakest thing that he's ever been involved with, which again proves that time is a flat circle. He wrote Scream because he was inv- involved with Halloween. Like Halloween, no, he wrote Scream because Halloween was his favourite movie and it inspired him. Mm-hmm. And now he finally gets to work on a Halloween movie that is filtered through the prism of a film that he wrote, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. Um, I just think, again, like the nostalgia goggles are very much worn off with me yeah. with this film. Like there's a lot of films that I grew up loving as a kid that I still love now. Like Valentine, I can pop on every like, Halloween and enjoy it. Like Bride of Chucky as well. That's another movie that I forgot to mention at the beginning of this movie. That came out the same year as this. You know, that completely reinvented another horror character and did it in a self-referential way. Mm. But it stuck true to the lore of that character and what made that character so popular in the first place. Um, And it it remained true to its franchise, whereas I think this didn't. I think if this movie didn't have Jamie Lee Curtis in it and you swap Michael Myers out for another killer and just made it another screen clone, which, to be fair, it is... I don't think this movie is it gets half the praise that it should that it had done it in the past. Yeah, and I, I think in the Halloween canon, it's one of the ones that people tend to kind of forget about more. But I also feel a little bit like if they'd have given it a different killer and made it its own standalone movie, in no way connected to people the Halloween, would have liked franchise, it, more. it would have probably been more enjoyable purely because it's not doesn't have the backing of like it's a Halloween movie yeah. you were expecting a very certain thing it'd have been like it's just a general slasher yeah. trashy piece of crap movie and everyone would have gone like yeah and to be fair if that was the case I'd have probably watched it and gone it's so bad it's good but because I know that it's part of this big world of movies and a quite respect respected mm. horror franchise it's very disappointing and I think it's because it's the legacy film as well. It's yeah. the Jamie Lee coming back and, and like this is what you look at it like this is what she came back for. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would probably give it a three just because I do have that nostalgia. Um, I think I think it, it is definitely one of the weaker movies in the Halloween canon. But you know, I think for your first Halloween movie, it was a good introduction. We can kind of ease you into the franchise, you know, and it's not as bad as fucking Resurrection. It's n- you know, at least this movie doesn't have Buster Rhymes kung fu fighting Michael Myers and saying trick or treat motherfucker as he kicks him for a walk. Trick or treat As he kicks him in the dick. Um, but yeah, so on Friday... So this episode's launching on the 1st of March. On Friday, the 5th of March, there'll be the first episode of our new series, 5 by 5 where we'll be doing a ranking video every other Friday. And we're going to be looking at it's ranking... not a video, but yeah. <laughs> Well, ranking podcast. Podcast. We'll be doing a top five. We'll be picking a topic and then doing our top five of that topic. Mm-hmm. The first episode, which is dropping on Friday, will be our top five favorite vampires in movies and TV. My list currently has about <laughs> twenty vampires on there. I nice. need to like, <laughs> I'm like slowly trying to whittle it down. <laughs> and then next week's episode, based off of that, will be Dracula 2000. So. <laughs> As always, I've been Simon. I've been Lee. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.